You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles ready, let's turn there now. Well, once upon a time, there was a little country boy who lived in a home without indoor plumbing. The little boy hated the outhouse. You can only imagine. It was hot in the summer, cold in the winter, and it smelled gross all year long. One boring day after a huge spring rain had made the creek behind the house rise up nearly to the outhouse, he decided to push the evil thing into the creek. He pushed and he pushed until he got it rocking back and forth, and finally it toppled into the creek and floated away. That night, his dad confronted him. Someone pushed our outhouse into the creek today. Tell the truth, son. It was you, wasn't it? The son says, I cannot tell a lie. Yes, dad, it was, it was me. The dad said, well, then tonight after dinner, you and I are heading out back to the woodshed. But daddy said, today we learned in school about George Washington. When he was little, he cut down a cherry tree and he didn't get in trouble by his dad because he told the truth. His dad replied, well, son, that might be true for George Washington, but his dad wasn't in that cherry tree. Thank you. Okay. In chapter 26, Paul too is in trouble for speaking the truth when he's trying to reason that the Messiah, in this case, pushes unbelief and self-righteousness, religion, hypocrisy, immorality, and all unrighteousness into the creek. By chapter 26, we've seen that the Jews had jumped and beat Paul in Jerusalem with an angry mob. The Roman soldiers intervene and try to figure out what Paul has done to make the Jews so darn mad. While he's in custody, the Jews try to ambush and assassinate Paul two separate times. But the Romans had taken Paul to Caesarea, about 46 miles from Jerusalem, where for two years the Roman governor Felix hears Paul, finds him innocent, but keeps him in custody to please the Jews. Paul utilizes his Roman citizenship and appeals to Caesar to protect himself from the Jews, but more importantly, to take the message of Jesus to Rome and to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to Caesar Nero. The new governor at this point in chapter 26, Festus, doesn't have a file of legitimate crimes to send with Paul to Rome, and so he asks for the opinion of King Herod Agrippa II, who enters into the Caesarean theater along with his uh, queen-slash-sister-slash-weird wife, Beatrice, And uh, the governor Festus, along with mighty commanders and prominent Roman men, all adorned in their robes and uh, Roman Roman armor. And as chapter 25 tells us, they enter into the Caesarean theater with great pomp, which is where we get the word fantasy. They're living in this fantasy of fantasticism or something. You know, they just walk in uh, with with all this glory to to hear a prisoner in chains and in in a prison garb. And so here in chapter 26, Herod Agrippa II, his wife, the governor, prominent men of the city and soldiers, hear Paul concerning Jesus Christ. And in chapter 26, by the end of the chapter, by verse 24, the Roman governor Festus will cry out with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. You've gone crazy. You guys might remember the rabbi that Saul had stood under as a young man. His name was Gamaliel. And he said of Saul, I can never provide enough books for Saul. Festus cried out that Paul was crazy. But as as we've watched Paul in the book of Acts, we know that he's intelligent. We know he knows his stuff. You know, we know he's got a mind that can understand the gospel. But to Festus... He's become much like Russell Crowe in the movie The Beautiful Mind, you know, with the white pen out, you know, writing on, oh, let's see, the, the Messiah starts out here, and then he changed my life, and then, oh, no, the prophecies, oh, that prophecy, virgin birth, oh, Bethlehem, and Nazareth, and Egypt, and oh, 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 you know, and Paul is here standing before Herod just with his white pen out, and then this, and this, and here's another reason, and here's another reason, and this arrow goes over here, and, and uh, you're crazy, you're crazy, you're schizophrenic, man, you think you've seen Jesus, you think an earthquake happened and let you out of a Philippian jail, and, you know, You've gone crazy. Too much learning is driving you mad. And Paul replies in verse 25 by saying, I'm not mad, most noble Felix, but I speak the words of truth and of reason. Truth and reason. 
Christianity is based on historical truth. Eyewitness accounts. You know, I was born in Klamath Falls and raised in Klamath Falls, and I remember the news station there. You know you're a big city when you got your own news station. It's on TV, you know. And, uh, but I remember the, the evening news was called Eyewitness News. You know, Eyewitness News. And I loved that as a little kid. Whoa, eyewitnesses saw all of this stuff. And even as a, you know, a second grader, that meant something to me. It should mean something to you today as well. Because the secular media is trying to tell us a different story. Magazines are always trying to discredit the Christian faith. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, the Apostle John tells us that that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. You know, John was a guy that, he calls himself the Apostle whom Jesus loved, or the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he says, man, I've heard Jesus' voice. I've seen him. You know, I've smelled him. I, you know, don't get weird on me, but I'm the guy that had my head on his chest at the Last Supper. You know, I know Jesus and I saw him alive. We've handled him. In 2 Peter 1.16, we're going to come back to it later on today. But Peter tells us we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses. Of his majesty. And so to reject the New Testament is to reject historical truth by eyewitnesses. To reject the scriptures, it's been said, is to commit intellectual suicide. How do you know about George Washington, Christopher Columbus? By eyewitness accounts and record. And so Paul says, I speak truth, I speak reason. You know, Christianity is very reasonable. It's intelligent. It's a logical response to God. And it's a response that some of you have yet to make. Maybe God brought you here today to show that you don't have to be mindless to be a Christian. You don't have to have blind faith. Some say if you want to be a Christian, you have to shut your mind off and not look at the evidence of proof and just blindly follow the mystic the philosopher, Jesus Christ. But God gave you a mind. He wants you to use your mind. As Jesus said, you shall love the Lord with all your heart and with all your mind. God gave you a mind. He wants you to use your mind. He wants you to love him with your mind. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18. Isaiah writes from the Lord, Come now and let us reason together. Let's have dialogue together. Let's talk about this, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you're willing and obedient, you shall eat of the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It's an important thing to reason with the Lord because it's the difference between salvation or destruction. It's the difference between obedience and correction. He wants you to reason. It's okay to wrestle and to struggle intellectually. God has given the intelligent man overwhelming proof that he does indeed exist. He's proved that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And so I ask you today, are you interested in proof? Everyone's talking about Jesus. There's all this Jesus stuff out there. Prove it to me. Really? Can I prove it to you? Will you be open if I bring the evidence before you and lay it at your feet? How many people make the decision that they're atheists or agnostics, but they've never really done their research? And if you call yourself an atheist today, if you call yourself an agnostic today, have you really made an exhaustive study concerning Jesus being the Christ before you put him off and reject him? If you're interested in proof, there's proof to be had. Today I'll bring you some evidence, and you can examine the evidence, and you can intelligently reason with God. But if the proof were laid before you, would you really turn from your sin to serve the living God? If it was all laid out before you, 
You know, so many people say there is no proof. Yeah, but what if I brought you proof? Well, you can't do that. You wouldn't have it. But what if I, just what if I brought you truth and it all pointed, all this evidence pointed towards Jesus being the Christ? Would you turn from your sins? Would you turn from your immorality to follow the living God? What if? Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 19 and 20, that this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light. Because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. You know, people are seeking to put away this God because they don't want to be accountable to him. They love their darkness. And even though they see the light, they don't want the light. Is that you today? Well, I bring you some proof. I bring you truth and reason. And you ask, where is this proof? Well, today we're going to look at a message of truth, proof, and reasonable logic that Paul has used in hopes of convincing an intelligent king, queen, governor, mighty men, and Roman commanders of the army. And first of all, we're going to see external proof, then internal proof. So let's start out with external proof. Paul's very testimony is evidence of Jesus being the Messiah. In verses 1 through 18. Paul uses his testimony to explain and to relate the incredible transformation that an encounter with Jesus will bring. And you know, a testimony of a changed life is powerful. The skeptics have no way to explain away the changed life of Saul of Tarsus and how he became Paul the Apostle. The historian doesn't know how to explain away this man of history, Saul. It's the same way with you. You know, the people are touched by your testimony and what a difference Christ can bring and and can make in your life. You know, are you familiar with your testimony? Would you be able to tell it to somebody, uh, you know, at the drop of a hat? I hope so. I was reading a testimony recently that a man wrote me of his own life. And it was so good to read that. And just that, that a man had put that much effort into recalling what God has done in his life. And it might be a good thing for you to get there with your laptop or your computer and just write how the Lord pursued you, how the Lord showed himself to you, how the Lord wooed you when you surrendered to him and how he changed your life, how he transformed you, like he transformed Paul the apostle. But in verses 1 through 18, we see Paul's life before his conversion. And let's just go ahead and read that. Let's go ahead and jump back to um, verse 23 of chapter 25. So the next day when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at Festus's command, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men who are here present with us, you see this man about whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. But when I found that he had committed nothing deserving of death and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. Therefore, I have brought him out before you and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examinations taken place, I might have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to specify the charges against him. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you're permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I'm accused by the Jews, especially because you are expert in all the customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know they knew me from the first if they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise, our 12 tribes earnestly serving God night and day hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I'm accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raised the dead? Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. 
And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. While thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priest, at midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I've appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you've seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I, pres- uh, to my, whom, to whom I now send you, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So Paul shares his testimony, his pre-conversion life with Agrippa and the rest, that he was devout, that he was zealous, that he was religious, that he was exceedingly angry and enraged, full of hatred and murderous thoughts against the Christians, the sect that was called the way. But Paul's conversion happened through a personal encounter with the risen Jesus. He came face to face with Jesus. His life in an instant was transformed. That's the evidence of someone who's come face to face with Jesus. That their lives are transformed. So I ask you today, has your life been transformed? Have you been made a new creation? Are you born again? Are you trusting in your good works that you've donated to the United Way, that you've been boxing food for the Oasis? Are you trusting in that you believe that that Jesus has existed? It doesn't mean that you're saved. You need to have your life transformed by the Holy Spirit. You need to be born again, regenerated. As Jeremiah says, you need to have your heart of stone taken out and have a heart of flesh be placed back in. Maybe today you would be spoken to by Paul's testimony. There needs to be a stepping out of religion and good works and into a personal relationship with Jesus. Paul's life before his conversion was evidence that he'd been transformed into a new creation. The Jews that accused him knew it. Herod himself knew it. And so in verses 19 through 23, there's more evidence of a converted life, Paul's converted life. In verse 20, or verse 19, Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting of repentance. The message that Paul preached, that he declared, was the same message that he himself had to heed. It's the message preached by John the Baptist, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is a message preached by Jesus. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now Paul preached it, but before he preached it, he had to live it. He himself had to repent. And that definition literally means change your mind. Was there a changing of mind in Paul on the road to Damascus? You bet. I hate Christians. I can't wait to drag them out by their hair. I'm going to throw them into prison. I might even kill a few. I just hate them. And all of a sudden there was a I do, not, I do not hate them anymore. I love them. I'm going to very much cherish them because I have a lot to make up for. Paul felt guilty for his attitudes towards Christian for the rest of his life. But there was a repenting in his life. He changed his mind. He turned to God. And he did works befitting of repentance. Just as we are preached today. Repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. Your faith needs to be evidenced by works befitting repentance. Your confession of faith needs to be followed by works worthy of pronouncing, I've repented. James himself says that your faith without works is dead. In the church I grew up in, I remember people getting up front with color-coded microphones and singing that faith without works is like a screen door on a submarine. I was ministered by that song. I remember it to this day. That faith without works, it's dead. And Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 tells us, and there's great confusion because we're told 
It's by grace that we're saved. It's by a gift that we're saved. Through faith. And it's not of works, lest any man should boast. And that is true. And we all say, Amen. We are saved by grace. Through faith. And yet, we're not saved by good works, but we're saved for good works. Faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is not alone. In your life, you need to show that you've been saved. Your faith will show in the works that you do. True faith will be demonstrated by your life. And yet, it's not something that you do. It's something the Holy Spirit does in you. And so what do we do? And we appeal every day for the Holy Spirit to take our will, to take our life, to walk in the Spirit. We will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. So repent from your sin today. Change your mind about it. Turn 180 degrees to follow Jesus. And allow him to work through you true works befitting repentance. That was the message that Paul preached. And by verse... uh, By verse 21, we see, For these reasons the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God to this day, I stand witnessing to both small and great. And he preached repentance. He preached works befitting repentance. And yet, the Jews didn't want that because it meant they were going to have to repent. They were going to have to change their mind about who God was. They were going to have to repent from a life of hypocrisy. But Paul kept preaching. He preached to the small, the down and out, the outcast, and he preached to the great, the wealthy. You know, it would seem from the outside, they have need of nothing. But Jesus would tell them, man, you are poor, you are blind, you are miserable, and you are naked. And so I counsel you to come and buy gold refined in the furnace, and to let me clothe you in garments of white, and to let me anoint your eyes with salve that you could see once again. The down and out, You know, in the up and in, you know, they all need Jesus. So Paul preached to them. And through that time of preaching, much persecution came upon him. We know that. We're almost at the end of the book of Acts, right? But Paul was able to say that the Lord helped me. I obtained help from him that I could preach the gospel. That is a testimony. That is an evidence that God is real, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is God. Because Paul had dramatic incredible intervention in his ministry. Whether it be demons that were resisting him and he was able to rebuke, whether it be prison doors that were you know, shaken open from their foundation and, and handcuffs coming off. Man, the Lord did it and showed himself faithful in Paul and the other apostles' lives. And that's testimony, that's evidence to who God is, to what he's done, to who Jesus is. Heard this week the story about Frederick Nolan, who was a missionary in North Africa. As he preached the gospel in one village, they resisted him and rejected him and threatened his life. So he started to run out of the village. He ran out of the village with 450 men hot on his heels, and he ended up in a canyon with no way out. So he darted into a small, shallow cave and pressed his body up against the moisture of the ground. He went into a panic attack, knowing that in 30 minutes, his persecutors would find him, drag him out of the cave, and kill him. And yet, as he lay there, he saw an unusual spider weave a web over the entrance of the cave. And as the pursuers came, five and six of them got off of their horses and their mounts, and they looked, and they saw that over this cave, there was a giant spider web. And so they figured that no one had gone in there to hide And so they went away, and Frederick Nolan was safe. Through God working in a supernatural way, very naturally. And Paul was able to attest, I've had these things happen to me. You can't tell me that Jesus isn't God. You can't tell me that Jesus hasn't been watching out for me. And so in verses 19 through 23, we see Paul's life after his conversion and his testimony, as he would preach and as the Lord would would help him, And he says that his message in verse 22, I'd say no other things than those which the prophets and Moses would say would come, that the Christ would suffer and that he would be the first to rise from the dead. He would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. And so we look at these 
prophecies as the second main proof that I want to give you today. The first was an external proof. Just look at what God did in Paul's life. And look what God's done in, in many of your lives. But also internal. The proof is in the pudding. The proof is in the word of God. Through Bible prophecies. As Paul says, I only preach what Moses would have preached. A third of the Bible is prophecy. It's unlike any other book published. God has told us an end from the beginning that we might know that he is God. So prophecy is there to show us that he's the Messiah, that we might believe in him. In the Old Testament, there's over 330 specific prophecies of Jesus' coming, his life, his death, his resurrection, so that the intelligent, reasonable man could see that he's the Messiah, the Savior of the world. It's an exciting thing for me. I love to study just the proofs of Jesus. Apologetics. You've heard this story before, but I'd like to share it again. It's about Peter Stoner, who's a mathematician from Westmont College. And he wrote a book through research called Science Speaks, where he calculated the odds of any man in history fulfilling the 330 prophecies that Jesus directly fulfilled during his first coming. In his book, he writes that the odds of just eight of these prophecies, like the virgin birth and him being born in Bethlehem and going to Egypt as a child, the odds of him fulfilling eight of these would be one in ten to the 17th power. And to illustrate this, Peter Stoner said you could stack silver dollars two feet thick across the state of Texas, take a blindfolded man and have him pick out a silver dollar with an X on it out of all the silver dollars across the state of Texas. Nearly impossible, right? Then he said, well, how about if a man fulfilled more than eight of those? Let's say a guy could fulfill 48 of 330 prophecies. Well, that would be one in 10 to the 157th power. He says in his book, it's difficult to paint a picture of these odds, but I'm going to try it anyways. If you were to take a row of an electrons, uh, one inch long, and count them 250 electrons per minute nonstop, it would take you 19 million years to count them. If you were to take one cubed inch of electrons, it would take you 19 million cubed years to count them. That's 19 million times 19 million times 19 million years. That's Roughly the number of 1 in 10 to the 157th power. Then, to pick any one electron, have somebody pick that pre-selected electron out of there, the odds would be 1 in 1 in 10 to the 157th power. So pretty crazy, because Jesus did more than fulfilled 8 of them. Jesus fulfilled more than 48 of them. Jesus fulfilled all 330 of them. And so let's look at some of them today, can we? I want you, if you can, if you have a pen, to underline these and write, um, write them down, get to know them, okay? I want you to know these prophecies. I have notes up here, and, uh, and you can get them from me, and I'll email you guys if you want them. But I want you to have these prophesi- prophecies circled and underlined in your Bible so that you know where they are. You can use them. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. This is in really no particular order, but Micah chapter 5, verse 2. <laughs> It says this, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler of Israel, excuse me, whose going forth are from of old, from everlasting. So, 700 years before Jesus even came, Micah prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem of Judah. If you've read the Gospels, where was Jesus born? Bethlehem in Judea. Herod even used this prophecy to find out where the Messiah would be born. You remember the account. He heard that the king of the Jews is being born, so he called for the chief priests, and he said, where is it that the the Messiah would be born? And they said, well, Micah tells us, in Bethlehem. And they quote this verse. And so what does he do? He sends out soldiers into Bethlehem to kill all of the male children two years old and under in all of her districts. Then you have Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9. Zechariah 9 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. 
He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So 500 years before Jesus came, Zechariah prophesied of the triumphal entry and that it wouldn't be on a great white stallion, but that it would be a lowly entry, riding on the foal of a donkey. We should know these things. We should know the prophecies. We should use them every time we witness. We should use the resurrection every time we witness. We should use the Old Testament proofs that God has given us to convince intelligent men that Jesus is the Christ. Daniel chapter 9 verse 24. We'll be there in eight weeks or so. Daniel 9 24 prophesies the exact day the Messiah would come into Jerusalem. We're going to get into it in depth then. We'll have PowerPoint and everything. But I'll just give you a little snippet of it. <clears throat> Daniel 9.24, I hope you're there. It says this, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. Now, first of all, we think 70 weeks is in, well, there's 52 weeks in a year, so that's just a little more than a year. But actually the word week there is the word heptad, and it's a unit of measurement, like a dozen, okay? So if you were to have a heptad of eggs, you would have seven eggs, just seven. It just means seven. So 70 sevens are determined, that's 490 years, are determined for your people, for your holy city, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation of iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and anoint the most holy. Okay, So 490 years until Jesus is coming back and he's going to set his kingdom up upon the earth in the second coming. But he says this, that 69 of those weeks are going to take place first, okay? And it's going to happen right after the building of the wall when they come back from the captivity. You read about it in verse 25 of Daniel chapter 9. And if you do all the math, here's what the prophecy says in a nutshell. That from the day King Artaxerxes says, go back, Israel, you can go back, Judah, you can go back and build the wall around Jerusalem, the stopwatch starts, okay? Click, Bible prophecy starts, okay? He says, 173,880 days later, Messiah's gonna come in. Just letting you know. Put that in your brain bank, you know? Put that in your notepad. 173,880 days. And guess what? 173,880 days after March 14th, 445 B.C., you come to April 6th, 32 AD. And guess what happened that day? Can you hear a... You know, is that the sound of a mighty ruler coming in to take over Israel? Yes. <laughs> it is. He's lowly. He's riding on the donkey, you know, a fool of a donkey. Prophecy fulfilled. There were no other big parties going on that day in Jerusalem about who's coming in to take over the kingdom. That was it. And it was quite a, it was quite a coming. Hosanna! Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Break down that palm tree. Let's just throw palms everywhere. Let's throw our garments down before this donkey. They were heralding Jesus into Jerusalem to be the Messiah. No one else gets to claim that one. No one else gets to have that prophecy chalked up to them. Sir Robert Anderson was a detective who used to work for Scotland Yard back in the late 1800s. A detective who ended up dedicating his life to teach this prophecy of Daniel chapter 9. And he would end up writing a whole book on it. I tracked that book down yesterday. I can't wait to read it for our Daniel study. Another prophecy, Psalm 41.9. Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. So Jesus would be betrayed by his trusted friend with whom he ate bread. You know, that's exactly what happened as he was betrayed by Judas who dipped bread with him at the same time in the bowl, the day of his betrayal. Zechariah eleven twelve prophesies that the Messiah would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Was Jesus betrayed for 29? Or for 31? 30. Psalm chapter 22, flip over there, verse 14. Psalm twenty-two, fourteen. 14. This is known as the Psalm of the Cross. And the whole chapter is just 
blows your mind about how uh, parallel it is with the gospel accounts of the crucifixion. But for the sake of time, we'll just read these four verses. He says, I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt and my tongue clings to my jaws. You've brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Such a specific prophecy about crucifixion. And as you do a medical study on the crucifixion, all of these things happen to a body as it hangs there on the cross. This was prophesied by David of his great, 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 28 times great grandson, Jesus, who would hang on the cross, who would thirst, who would have his heart explode within his body. And a Roman spear would show that it would pour out like melted wax Dogs, known as Roman soldiers, would surround him and they would mock him. They would pierce his hands and his feet. A prophecy of crucifixion that wouldn't even be invented for a thousand years later. You could count all of Jesus' bones as he was exposed from the Roman whipping that he took. And even the Roman soldiers would take his clothes and gamble for them. We call this the Psalm of the Cross, but skeptics call it the Passover plot. Big deal, so what? Jesus just manipulated all of these biblical prophecies about himself. Really? Did Jesus have any control over if he was going to be born in Bethlehem? Or who would betray him? Or who would wag their head at him as he was hanging on the cross? Did he have any control of men casting lots for his clothing? Did he have any control over even being crucified? As Isaiah chapter 53 verse 9 prophesies that they would make his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Did he have any control over the death that it would be with the wicked? That he would be buried in a rich man's tomb? That he would hang between two thieves on a cross? Let's look at a few more of these things. Did Jesus fraudulently manipulate that he would be born of a virgin? Hard to manipulate that one. That he would be born in Bethlehem, that he would be from Nazareth, that he would come out of Egypt as a young child, that he would be a descendant of Judah and Jesse and David, all separate prophecies about him, that he would have no bones broken, but that while he hangs on the cross, the two thieves next to him would have their bones broken, but oh no, Jesus doesn't get his bones broken, he gets the spear in the side. Jesus have control over that. Did Jesus have control over being betrayed by the friend for 30 pieces of silver and then to have that 30 pieces of silver returned and then to have that 30 pieces of silver go by the potter's field as that was prophesied? What about performing miracles? What about the resurrection? Seems like somebody's behind all of this, right? Some kind of someone behind the scenes manipulating it all to happen. Yeah, basically that is what's happening. Because Jesus is God and he knew it would happen before it happened. And then he went and he did it. He's the only one that could control those situations. Second Peter chapter 1 verse 16. I told you we'd come back to it. Let's flip over there in the New Testament. Second Peter 1 16. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And we heard his voice which came from heaven and we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. You know, Peter's talking here about the day he got to see the transfiguration the day he heard the voice, the day he saw Moses and Elijah standing there on each side of Jesus. He saw it. He heard it. He wanted to stay up on that mountain and he wanted to live up there forever. And he says, but you know what's even more incredible than what I saw? The prophetic word of scripture confirmed in Jesus. As the King James Version puts it, the more sure word of prophecy, which we do well to heed. God has given us prophecy so that intelligent people could recognize Jesus as the Messiah and believe on him as their savior. 
Prophecy is meant to shine into the dark place of the skeptic's heart and to illuminate. You know, it's pervasive, it's powerful, and it leads us to Christ. Is it shining in your heart right now? There in verse uh, 24, it says, Now as he made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. But he said, I'm not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king, before whom I also freely speak, knows these things. For I'm convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, since this thing was not done in a corner. King, you know all about this this guy from Galilee, this Jesus. You know all about the miracles that he did. It wasn't that long ago. You remember. You've heard about the resurrection. You remember when those Roman soldiers came in from the tomb and said, an angel shined, and we were terrified, and we fainted, and the angel threw the rock away from the tomb, and oh my goodness, you know, Herod remembers those things. He remembers. They weren't done in a corner. They were open so that the world could see. Come on, Herod, be honest. In verse 27, come on, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. There's this direct question coming straight out at Herod. It's actually the second direct question. Jump back to verse 8, where he asks directly, why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? I mean, he's pre- preaching right at the guy. You know, hey, Herod, why, sh- why are you doubting? Why is it an unbelievable thing that God and that Jesus rose from the dead? It's a good question for the skeptic today. Is it really so hard to believe? It's been said that the hardest verse in the Bible to believe is Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Why is that? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you can believe that, you can believe anything else in the Bible. Noah's Ark, oh, seriously, two giraffes? I mean, where did he get giraffes? I mean, come on, you know, two of every animal in a boat? Yeah, right. Really, is it that hard to believe? I mean, because the God I know, he created all this by just saying, bam, say my name, you know. It's not a hard thing for him to be like the Pied Piper and bring all the animals into the Ark. You know, that's not a big deal for my God. Jonah and the whale really... Could, could a man have oxygen inside Shamu for three days? Well, yes, you know. The burning bush, can a bush really burn and not be consumed? I don't know about this stuff, you know. The Red Sea parting and millions of people walking through? Mm-mm. Man, you have a little God and big problems, buddy. Because I have a big God and there's nothing too hard for him. If you can believe Genesis 1-1... You shouldn't have a problem with the resurrection. You know, didn't God create the heavens out of nothing? Didn't he speak and light came forth? Did he not form man from the dust of the earth and then breathe into his lungs the breath of life? Maybe he was just breathing into Jonah's lungs the whole time. I don't know, but Jonah lived in there. And so shouldn't he also be able to raise man up from the earth and give life again to his mortal flesh? Is this too hard of a thing for God? Is it a foolish thing that God would do that? So why should it be unbelievable that God would raise man from the dead and then he would do it first with his son, Jesus Christ? Wasn't our condition in the garden before the fall one of perfection? So why shouldn't we be restored to that same state as God abolishes sin and makes all things new? Herod, is it really You're partial Jewish, buddy. You know the God of the Bible. You know the God of the scriptures. Is it that hard to imagine? Well, then we have the next direct question here over in verse 27. And King Agrippa, I'm looking at you, buddy. Do you believe the prophets? Do you believe all that we've just been talking about? Look at my whiteboard. You know, look at my white pen. You know, look at what I've written here. Do you believe all this? I know that you believe. I know it. Second direct question here. You're an intelligent man. Do you believe the prophets? How about you today? Do you believe the prophets? Verse 28, Agrippa said to Paul, You almost persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today 
might become almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. And don't you love that? Man, your argument, your PowerPoint presentation, Paul, and your knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures and your testimony and, man, all that God's done, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul was not going to settle for Herod being an almost Christian. Because he knew that almost Christians almost make it to heaven. He knew that almost Christians just were interested in Christianity and, wow, crazy stories of adventure and whales, you know, and burning bushes. And, oh, man, I'm kind of interested in that, but, you know, some other time. Paul was not content with that. Paul said, man, I want you to be just as I am. I want you to have an encounter with the risen God who created you. Man, I want you to be able to read the Bible and understand it and just have your heart burn within you as you read it. And you're, I want more, you know? And I got to tell others about it. Man, I want you to know everything I know and everything I've experienced. But man, I'll tell you, I've been beaten, dude. I've been beaten. I've been killed with rocks and I came back to life. In a couple chapters, I'm going to be shipwrecked, you know? And, and right now I'm in chains and I don't wish none of that on you. But man, I want you to know Jesus like I know him. And when he'd said these things, the king stood up, as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with them. And when they'd gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, This man's doing nothing deserving of death or chains. Then Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he'd not appealed to Caesar. Let's go ahead and set our Bibles aside and And maybe you're here today and you're an almost Christian, like Herod. Maybe you've been raised in the church. Maybe you have a history of the Bible and some understanding of the Bible. Maybe your mind, you got it up here, man. You, you know the answers. You know the songs. It's up here. But if you were to travel 18 inches south in your heart, you've got a rock sitting right there. And today you need Jesus to remove by the Spirit that rock and place into your heart a heart of flesh. You know, as I was talking about the Bible, and I I wasn't making stuff up. That's Man, when you read the Bible, you get that excited about it. You have such a love for it like that. And maybe you just need to have the rock heart taken out and a heart of flesh put back in. And today that can happen. It's been said that, you know, those almost Christians, they almost get to heaven, but they miss it by 18 inches. It's that distance between the the head and the heart. And may today you move beyond a head knowledge about God and may you surrender to Jesus as your Lord That means your master. And that you would surrender to Jesus as your Christ. That means your savior. That today you would rest in him. You would place all your weight on what he's done on the cross. When he hung there for you. When he shed his blood so that you could have forgiveness of sins. And as we close in worship today, and I beg you to make that confession before the Lord and just say, Lord Jesus, you're the Messiah. You fulfilled these prophecies. You did it, Lord. The evidence has been presented, and Lord, I yield. I yield. I surrender. And in humility, Lord, I come before you with dirt on my hands and dirt on my robes and Lord, I'm filthy with the things that I've done. But Lord Jesus, I've reasoned with you today. And I come. And I ask you to take my crimson, dirty robe and put on me a white, snowy, woolly, white robe of righteousness. So that, Lord, no longer do I stand in what I've done. But, Lord, I stand and I rest in what you've done. When you laid down your life on the cross... I believe, Lord. I receive, Lord. Change me. 
right now, take that heart of stone out. Place in me a heart of flesh. I repent of the way I've been thinking about you. That I thought you were just an old man that lived a long time ago. Or some good man or some prophet. But Lord, today I declare you to be God. I declare you to be creator. I declare you to be my savior. And I just receive the washing of forgiveness of sins. Wash me, cleanse me, forgive me for all that I've done. Lord, I've been ruining my life. I've been ruining other people's lives. Cover me with your grace, Lord. Bring restoration into my life. Lord, where I've been an almost Christian, please forgive me, Lord. Do a work in me where I'm a Christian today. And also as we worship, just for you Christians out there, man, I just encourage you to just allow the Lord to work in your heart once again, a heart of belief, because you've been reminded of who Jesus is and who he is today. Lord, we cry out as Christians, Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. As we worship We're going to have the prayer team come forward. And uh, just if you need prayer for anything, whatever it might be, come on up and get prayer. If you're stressed out, if you're worried, maybe you want to pray about just something awesome that happened, you want to just praise with somebody, come on up. We'd love to rejoice with you. Maybe today, for the first time, you rested in Jesus. You've been born again. Right now, as you prayed to him, you're born again. And you'd like to come forward. If you did pray that, I'd even ask you to come forward and just get prayer today. And let us know what you've, you've committed your life to Christ. And we'll pray for you and encourage you. And if you're a Christian here today and you just, and you just need prayer, you want to walk in belief, come on up. We'd just love to pray for you. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further on our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.